Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In 2004, Icelandic volcanologist Haraldar Sigurdsson was visiting Sumbawa, a medium-sized island in the Indonesian archipelago. The Sumbawa savannas are ideally suited to the breeding of horses and cows. Its population, around 1.4 million people, work primarily in agriculture and mining. One of Sigurdsson's local guides informed him of a small gully where locals had found old pottery and other goods. They called it Museum Gully and knew nothing more of it. They might have been surprised when Sigurdsson enthusiastically asked them to take him there. The guides took Sigurdsson to Museum Gully. Using ground-penetrating radar, he and his team from the University of Rhode Island uncovered the remains of a 19th century village frozen in time. They excavated one structure, a home which contained the carbonized remains of two people. The woman brandished a utility knife as if she was in the course of preparing a meal or performing an ordinary task around the house. The couple were surrounded by their belongings, furniture, iron tools, bronze bowls, and pottery. Sigurdsson knew that this site had been preserved by history's deadliest volcano, Mount Tambora, whose 1815 eruption changed history. The locals on Sumbawa knew little of this event, which had occurred only 200 years ago on the island they call home. This is not, of course, because they were uneducated or disinterested. They knew nothing of the eruption because few who lived on the island, and no one who lived on the mountain at the time, survived to tell the story. The Tambora people and their Raja lived closest to the volcano before the eruption. One April evening, their culture, their language, and their lifestyle became extinct within a matter of hours. The rest of the world was oblivious to the eruption for months. Even after news of the event reached the rest of the globe, they had no idea that they were already weathering its impact. The year following the eruption, 1816, was known in England as the year without a summer. In New England, it was known as 1800 and froze to death. <laughs> Very creative. Yeah. Um, and l'année de la misère, or das Hungerjahr, in Switzerland. So that means um, the year of misery or the hunger the year. year. Hunger. Yeah. yeah. Um, Germans dubbed 1817 as the year of the beggar. 
The Chinese and Indians had no name for it, but the years following the massive eruption were remembered as ones of intense and widespread suffering. Scientists are, only today, uncovering the historical impacts of this ecological disaster. Suddenly, we have climactic data, which have reshaped our understanding of the events of 1815 in the years that followed. Now, it's historians' job to explore the social, political, and cultural influence of this catastrophic event. All this and more today as we explore the eruption of Mount Tambora in April 1815. I'm Marissa Rhodes. And I'm Avril Earls. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG. In the beginning of the 19th century, Mount Tambora had been considered extinct. No one alive at the time knew of any Tambora eruptions since the start of recorded history. We now know that before 1815, Tambora had not erupted for over 5,000 years. Starting sometime in 1812, the villagers living on the mountain's terraces and at its foot reported hearing occasional rumbling and seeing small eruptions of steam. These developments were interesting to the inhabitants of the mountain who spoke a now extinct language related to Khmer, the language of Cambodia. They probably discussed it amongst themselves and with the traders and guides from the British and Dutch East India companies who occasionally docked in Sambawa's primary port called Bima. No one seemed particularly worried about Tambora's awakening. This was until April 5th, 1815. A loud explosion was heard up to 620 miles away, so that's a thousand kilometers for our non-American listeners. Um, a 15-mile high column of hot ash and smoke shot out of the massive volcano. Over 10,000 residents were killed immediately in this initial eruption. Two entire principalities, Tambora and Pakat, had been vaporized. Others, close by, choked on poisonous gases or were buried in ash and pumice, where they stayed until American students began excavating their resting places 200 years later. On April 10th, the volcano erupted again. This time, the column of ash and fire thrown from the volcano reached 25 miles high. This second explosion was heard over 1,500 miles away in Sumatra. The entire top of the mountain, totaling about a mile high, was blown off entirely, changing Mount Tambora's appearance forever. Much of the archipelago and its adjacent seas were plunged into darkness for days. Volcanic ash reached as far as 620 miles away from the site. The Raja of Sangar, a small principality on Zimbabwe, survived the disaster and described the site of the eruption for posterity. This is a quote. Three distinct columns of flame burst forth near the top of Tambora Mountain, all of them apparently within the verge of the crater. And after ascending separately to a very great height, their tops united in the air in a troubled, confused manner. In a short time, the whole mountain next to Sagar appeared like a body of liquid fire extending itself in every direction. Between 9 and 10 p.m., ashes began to fall, and soon after, a violent whirlwind ensued, which blew down nearly every house in the village of Sagor, carrying the tops and light parts along with it. In the part of Sagora adjoining Mount Tambora, its effects were much more violent, tearing up by the roots the largest trees and carrying them into the air together with men, houses, cattle, and whatever else came within its influence. 
This will account for the immense number of floating trees seen at sea. The sea rose nearly 12 feet higher than it had ever been known to before, and completely spoiled the only small spots of rice lands in Sagor, sweeping away houses and everything within its reach. The Sambawa people who did not die in either eruption suffered in the following weeks. They endured transplantation or homelessness as hot rivers of lava flowed over their villages. Thousands drowned in resultant tsunamis or suffered fatal injuries in volcanic wind gales. Tens of thousands died from thirst, hunger, disease, or malnutrition over the following months because their rice crops and infrastructure were destroyed. Their water supply was also poisoned by ash, pyroclastic flows, and the aerosolized gases it absorbed. Two weeks after the eruption, Lieutenant Owen Phillips was charged with delivering rice and drinking water to the island from stores on Java. He encountered a horrible scene. Few recognizable built structures still existed on the island, and both land and sea were littered with uprooted trees and rotting corpses. Um, and Phillips was actually the person, he was a, he was a British officer. He um, was the one who took, who recorded the account from the Raja that, that you read earlier. An estimated 117,000 people died as a direct result of the two April eruptions. Survivors who lived on the farther reaches of the island appeared to have emigrated en masse in the eruption's aftermath. The islanders reached such depths of desperation that they started selling themselves as slaves to Sulawesi pirates as a survival strategy. Within a year of the event, half of Sumbawa's population were dead or departed. Only years later did new groups arrive to repopulate and rebuild the island. Nearly all of Sumbawa's buildings date to after 1815. At least two small kingdoms were lost entirely, and we know very little about them. The Dutch and British East India companies, whose activities generated most of the documents we have about 19th century Indonesia, knew little of the Tambora or Pakat people. Neither company had been successful at regulating trade in Sumbawa and other small islands in the archipelago by that time. The Dutch had been in Indonesia since 1603, but focused their efforts on Java, which was closer to the mainland. Sailors had used Mount Tambora as a landmark and guide in their journeys, but their contact with the peoples on Sumbawa was minimal compared to the interactions in the bustling ports of Java. The nearby islands of Lombok, Bali, and East Java suffered considerable crop damage after the eruption, but news of their struggles did not travel far. Unlike the explosion of Krakatoa in the 1880s, this eruption went largely unreported. The telegraph had not yet been invented, and the volcano's immediate damage was confined to lesser colonized islands, which were still comparatively insular. What's more is that until the eruption of Krakatoa, which happened 70 years later, scientists were unsure of the climactic impact of volcanic eruptions. For this reason, studies on Tambora and its impacts are all fairly recent. First-hand documentation of its 1815 eruption are incredibly rare, so its death toll and its immediate consequences went really undetermined for decades. Most of the accounts we have from the time are recorded observations of British and Dutch sailors in the area. In the last few years, scientists are beginning to understand that the deposits of ash, pumice, and solidified lava flows have completely reshaped the island's topography. 
The Mount Tambora eruption has long since been identified as the cause of the year without a summer, but in 1816, few people had any idea that such a cataclysmic event had passed, and no one knew that it would wreak havoc all over the world for the next three years. First, we want to make sure that we give our listeners an idea of the scale of this eruption. So um, Krakatoa, which is often used as an example of, um, it's like the quintessential example of a natural disaster. So it flung four and a half cubic miles of pumice, rock, and ash, and other debris into the atmosphere. So that's no small amount, four and a half cubic miles. Um But when Tambora erupted, it expelled 36 cubic miles of debris into the atmosphere. So there's just, I mean, there's almost no comparison. I mean, there is, it's nine times bigger, but (laughs) there is a comparison, but it's hard, you know, there, it's unquestionable that Tambora was uh, way bigger. Right. Um, So those of us who have seen Dante's Peak starring Pierce Brosnan. Oh yeah, so good. And Linda Hamilton, what you see one of my favorite movies, they're like, weren't there like naked kids in like swimming in a... um, like a little lake or something and it turned yeah, like into like teens. a hot geyser yeah. or something yeah it boiled them exactly it was boiled pretty, them alive it was great <laughs> you say it was gross i say it was great um so those of us who have seen dante's peak might remember it was about the 1980 eruption of mount st helens in washington state um tambora's eruption was 100 times the size of the eruption of mount st helens so it's nearly impossible to imagine the scale of this disaster really i mean and you know when something is so massive and destructive it starts to like just be numbers and it doesn't even mean anything anymore in some sort of ways yeah yeah but one way we can measure Tambora's destructiveness is by exploring its impact over the rest of the world in the following years. Um, but keep in mind, at the time, no one knew that this eruption was to blame for the events that followed. The ash thrown up into the atmosphere by the violent explosion settled over the entire archipelago, blotting out the light for days after the event. This consequence was obviously perceived by people who were living at the time, uh, but what they could not have known was that the volcano had emitted 80 megatons, which is 80 million metric tons. That's so many tons. <laughs> Lots of tons. <laughs> uh, of sulfur dioxide, which rose into the stratosphere, creating a band around the tropics. Right, so as the world turned, it distributed yeah. all around the middle of the globe. So there, around, you know, the, the stratosphere of the tropics, they oxidized into sulfate aerosol particles, which were distributed globally over the next year. These aerosols were deposited on the ice covering both of the Earth's poles, and so the depositing continued for two years. Right, so there's like two years worth of layers right. of the aerosol deposits. Tambora's emissions were preserved in ice, appearing as they did in the months after the eruption and studied in ice cores extracted in 2009. Right. Isn't that so weird that you can just, like, take an ice core and it's just all, like, because you know that it never melted right. up at that certain spot. Yeah. So you can just see what was going on in the atmosphere for, like, every year. Yeah, it's pretty know, crazy. It's kind of cool. It's like tree rings. Yes, it's like tree rings. So these sulfate particles refract and absorb the sun's light in such a way that it leads to a cooling effect on the ground. And we won't get into the specifics of that, mostly because I do not understand it. But 
Just promise. Science. I promise that that's, that that's what's going on. So um, the world's temperatures plummeted for the next three years. This, in addition to other weather anomalies triggered by the eruption, disrupted ecosystems all over the planet. And I think um, we talked about proxies in Little Ice Age, um, and I explained kind of how they're used, but this is just sort of a quick refresher. Proxies are records of historical temperatures that still exist today. So, you know, records of histor- records of historical temperatures, anything that we can use to tell what was the temperature on this day in 1901 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, scientists have used ice cores, as we mentioned earlier, um, historical documentation by cultures all over the world, so people writing down what the temperature was, um, as well as dendrochronology, which April just mentioned, which is the reading of tree rings. Um, and they use these to determine temperature patterns after the eruption. Being historians, we're most interested in the document proxies, and to be honest, we're hardly qualified to talk about the other more scientific ways of studying this phenomenon, and you can go over to Lady Science Pod for stuff like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Quick plug. In North America and Europe, 19th century people had a nerdy habit of recording the temperature in meteorological, meteorological, just say weather data. Thank okay. you. Okay. And other weather data every day. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas Jefferson was one of these nerds. Uh, scholars have been able to use his records to, pr- to prove Tambora's impact on global temperatures. For example, on May 17th in 1816, Jefferson wrote, The spring has been unusually dry and cold. Our average morning cold for the month of May in other years has been 63 degrees of Fahrenheit. In present month, it has been to this day an average of 53 degrees and one morning as low as 43 degrees. (laughs) (laughs) That's how Thomas Jefferson sounds, obviously. Repeated frosts have killed the early fruits and the crops of tobacco and wheat will be poor. In a letter from Jefferson to David Bailey Warden, May 17th, 1816. Two months later, New England experienced a summer snowstorm that dropped 10 inches of snow on unsuspecting villages. So I'm, wait, like, I'm like feeling... Yeah, 10 inches is like fine. Did whatever. we miss a volcanic eruption? Like what's happening That's right what's now? That's what's happening now. I know. So 10 inches does not sound like much if you're from Buffalo, but it was June. No, that sounds like a lot to me for... Any time after December 1st. Right. I know. Well, it doesn't sound like a lot, like, in life. But in it's life. a ton in June. In June. Yes. Right. And this doesn't, just one document like this doesn't mean much, but added to hundreds of other documents where people similarly recorded plummeting temperatures, they act as evidence that Tambora's impact was far-reaching. The Gazette in Qing, China, reported the daily weather in enough detail that scholars have been able to measure Tambora's impact on China's weather between 1815 and 1819. They've also been able to use people's personal diaries, etc., letters, uh, to corroborate temperatures. During these years, China suffered from unseasonably cool and wet weather. Summer frost and snowfalls destroyed rice and buckwheat crops on such a scale that some areas, such as the southwestern Yunnan province, suffered severe famine. The Great Yunnan Famine was the result of three successive crop failures. It was so severe that people were reportedly selling their children, committing murder-suicides, and eating clay in desperation. Can you eat clay? They tried to make it work. Hmm. I mean, it probably just fills your stomach up. Yeah. Very little nutritional value, I would imagine. I guess it looks the same going out as it does going in. Right. Yeah. 
So starvation and desperation in Yunnan killed tens of thousands of people. The survivors of the Yunnan famine were understandably scarred and resentful, and they sought ways to protect themselves from another such disaster. One way they did this was by turning to cash crops, specifically poppy. Poppy plants, used to produce opium, were hardy enough to withstand the temperature fluctuations resulting from tambora. Even though they didn't provide sustenance to those who grew them, they brought in cash, which solved Yunnan's food insecurity crisis, or at least temporarily. Farmers weren't the only ones benefiting from this transition to cash crops. The state benefited as well because it was able to tax the lucrative crop and extract impressive revenue. What seemed like an innovative solution to famine at the time ended up having grave consequences. The famine contributed to the decline of the Qing dynasty and unfortunately coincided with the arrival of Western gunboats. Great Britain launched a strategy of gunboat diplomacy, where it used intimidation in Chinese ports to force trade deals which unilaterally benefited them. Meanwhile, the opium problem worsened. Neither the farmers nor the state had any monetary incentive to stop growing poppy. Eventually, the Yunnan province was entirely dedicated to the cultivation of poppy and was forced to import all of its grain from Southeast Asia. So Yunnan wasn't producing any food at all, which, you know, so much for the increased food security, right? Um, the opium-dependent population living in China's ports bought foreign opium supplies in massive quantities, which drained China of its silver. And this is what triggered the first and second opium wars with Britain. Right. It also created generations of Chinese people who struggled their entire lives with opium addiction. The Chinese state recognized widespread opium addiction as a national crisis as early as the 1830s. So this course of events is known in Chinese history as the Daoguang Depression. It was crucial to shaping China's interactions with the West. In centuries past, China had enjoyed economic stability, population growth, and competent widespread political influence. Tambora's impact on the climate made the Chinese vulnerable to Western exploitation and interference. And this set China on a path toward deterioration. The decline of the Qing, the Opium Wars, and the Taiping Rebellion all followed. Which killed millions of people, the Taiping Rebellion. Right. So some of the modern world's most dangerous pathogens also owe their strength to Tambora's eruption. India's monsoons were delayed in 1816 and 1817 by Tambora's sulfate gases. The dramatic alteration in moisture content in Indian towns and cities resulted in a mutation of the cholera bacterium. This mutation triggered the deadliest cholera epidemic in history known as the Bengal cholera, because Bengal is where it started. In November 1817, this mutated cholera killed 5,000 people in its first five days. The disease quickly spread and became a pandemic, lasting in Asia until 1821. Death tolls are staggeringly high, and a total has never been calculated. We know that 10,000 British soldiers stationed in India died of cholera in this time, um, but estimates of Indian deaths are projected to be in the hundreds of thousands. The bacterium did not become any less deadly as it traveled across Asia. Bangkok, for example, reported 30,000 cholera deaths. By 1823, the mutated strain reached Europe and then North America shortly after. Worldwide experts estimate that the cholera pandemic triggered by Tambora's gases killed millions. Is that what that movie with Edward Norton's about? Hulk? Love in a Time of Cholera? 
No, I've never heard of that movie. What? Oh, I would have thought you would have watched it. Nope. It's up your alley. (laughs) For centuries, India has been regarded as the homeland of cholera. Public health officials and sometimes even historians accuse the Indian government of neglecting sanitation and the Indian people of unhygienic practices, which transformed the country into a vector of the highly contagious disease. The British Empire used India's susceptibility to cholera to justify their colonial activities there. The British were also able to frame India as a third world country incapable of ruling itself and Britain as the modern, civilized world power, willing to influence the Indian state for the better. Of course, Gandhi disagrees. Disagreed. L-O-L. The impact of British colonialism in India is still being felt today. Studies of Tambora's impact have rectified this myth somewhat. There was little that India could have done to prevent the mutation and the spread of the cholera bacteria in light of the monsoon failures they endured. Right. So this this mutation and the strain, it was like a whole new thing. It's not something that they could have prevented. Right. Um, Another indirect impact of Tambora are the riots that ensued across the globe in response to widespread famine and disease. In modern societies, it's not as easy to see the connections between agricultural output and food security. But at the time of Tambora's eruption, the vast majority of the world was still engaged in subsistence agriculture. So variations in agricultural output had direct impact on how much food made it to the table. One crop failure was serious. Two crop failures in a row was dire. Most regions would have used any food stores to supplement the first failure. Three crop failures in a row, as we saw in the Hunan province in China, was an emergency. Gillen Darcy Wood, author of a new book about Tambora, put it well. Quote, for three years following Tambora's explosion, to be alive almost anywhere in the world meant to be hungry. End quote. In many areas, food scarcity led to riots and other unrest, especially in Europe, which was struggling with the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars during the year without a summer. So the Napoleonic Wars, I think they finished like four or five months after the eruption. Mm. And so they're kind of dialing down for more time. And there's tons of problems having to do with that as well. So Europe was particularly negatively impacted. In dire straits. In 1816 Ireland, for example, it rained four times more than what was typical. Crop failure was so severe that many were forced to sell their clothes and hair for food. Wearing rags in the cold and wet weather made the Irish susceptible to typhus, which just added to their misery. Ireland's chief secretary, Charles Grant, wrote, In the years 1816 and 1817, the state of the weather was so moist and wet that the lower orders of Ireland were almost deprived of fuel wherewith to dry themselves and of food whereon to subsist. They were obliged to feed on esculent plants such as mustard seeds, nettles, potato tops, and potato stalks, a diet which brought on a debility of body and encouraged the diseases more than anything else could have done. In Ballina County, Mayo, protests ensued over the export of oatmeal. The riot became so violent that the military was deployed to protect the town. Three rioters were killed, and many more were seriously wounded. Bavarian towns such as Augsburg and Memmingen were in turmoil for similar reasons. 
Rumors were circulating that authorities were exporting corn to Switzerland. The local newspapers illustrate the levels of desperation felt by Bavarian villagers. They reported that, quote, thousands of men and women were ripping chunks out of a living chestnut mare. And then at the end of this article, they said, they're sending our corn out to Switzerland, end quote. It's kind of supposed to be like a booyah sort of thing. Um, The rumors of export uh, sparked several riots that shut down the small cities. In England, the East Midlands also experienced unrest related to food insecurity. Villagers in Pentridge, Derbyshire, suffered high grain prices and post-war unemployment on a large scale. So as I said, they're deploying um, troops after the, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, not deploying, what's the word? Bringing them back. Uh, (laughs) Recalling? No, we always do this. We we did this, this. I can't remember what it is. Whatever. They're... Telling them to come home. Decommissioning. Decommissioning, yes. So they're decommissioning troops after the Napoleonic Wars, um, and they're all coming home. They have no work, and they're all starving. So they amassed weapons and marched on the village, killing one servant whose master refused to join the rising. A spy in their midst (laughs) formed on them, and so magistrates were able to neutralize the uprising fairly quickly, but dozens of men were indicted on treason. Three of them were executed publicly to dissuade other hungry and disaffected groups from doing the same. Many of these riots revolved around the export of food in towns where the local populations were near starvation. In the Bavarian cases Marissa mentioned, the magistrates were trying to provide relief to Switzerland, where Tambora's impact was particularly severe. There, the price of grain quadrupled between 1815 and 1817. As in other parts of the world, cold weather had led to unripened crops, and wet weather caused the rest to rot in the fields. Snow fell in record amounts for the two winters following the eruption, and there was 80% more rainfall than in an average year. Residents reported having to heat their homes throughout the summer months. Unseasonably cold weather in the summer of 1816 prevented the annual melting of the alpine ice caps, so that when the cooling subsided in 1817, there was more ice than usual, and the Swiss experienced unprecedented flooding. Switzerland may have been unequally affected by Tambora, but it's also the best studied area because it was the setting of an important cultural milestone for English literature. England's youngest and most promising authors gathered at Lake Geneva in the summer of 1816. Among them were Lord Byron, Percy Shelley, and Mary Godwin, um, who was soon to be Mary Shelley, the novelist and daughter of the badass feminist Mary Wollstonecraft. Lord Byron was escaping crushing debts and rumors of incest in England, which he actually, I think, did have a thing with his sister. It's weird. Um, I just listened to the History Chicks um, episode on Ada Lovelace, and she was Lord Byron's daughter, the the computer programmer. Um, And so I have this family on my mind, and it's just so weird that they keep coming up. But anyway, um, Byron was living in a villa on Lake Geneva. Mary, Percy, and Mary's sister Claire visited Byron, intending to escape London's dreary weather with a tour of Europe. So they said, wow, weather is awful here. Let's go to Europe. (laughs) Well, the continent, you know. Um, But they were obviously unaware of Tambora's impact on Europe's climate. After witnessing the wet and wintry bleakness of a post-Tambora Swiss summer, Mary wrote, quote, 
Never was a scene more awfully desolate, end quote. The group holed up in a villa and challenged each other to pass the time by telling the best ghost stories. It was the only activity that seemed appropriate given the dreary weather. Several notable works uh, emerged from this friendly storytelling competition. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Lord Byron's poem Darkness, and the seeds of a novel about a blood-sucking man, which was used later by John William Polidori to write The Vampire. This story might have been dramatized somewhat, but only in recent decades have scholars connected the Tambora eruption to this semi-mythical origin story for the Gothic movement in art and literature. But English literature was not the only cultural consequence of Tambora's climatic impact. In the Chinese province of Yunnan, which we discussed earlier, a new genre called famine poetry developed among the residents of the province. One poet, Li Yuyang, was forced to return home to save his parents from bankruptcy during the famine. He watched his neighbors commit beastly acts such as infanticide, child sales, and murder in hungry desperation. He barely survived himself. Suffering from malnutrition and mental illness after the famine, Li died 10 years later at the age of 42. Here is an excerpt from one of his poems, obviously translated into English. Right, and I want to point out that one of the books I used as a source for this, um, that's the first place where uh, Li Yuyang's poetry has um, appeared, like, translated in English. Okay. So. Neat? Yes. People rush from falling houses in their thousands. It is worse than the work of thieves. Bricks crack, walls fall. In an instant, the house is gone. My child catches my coat and cries out. I am running in the muddy road, then back to rescue my money and grains from the ruins. What else to do? My loved ones must eat. He writes of parents selling their children for food. Still they know the price of a son is not enough to pay for their hunger. And yet to watch him die is worse. The little ones don't understand. How could they? But the older boys keep close, weeping. I know, isn't it horrible? Um, I know. Um, So that is called, that genre is called famine poetry. And you can actually find different examples of this around the world. I think in Ireland, too, they have Mm -hmm. some famine poetry. Art historians has successfully correlated the post-Tambora optical aerosol depth. So they've actually been able to measure, like, exactly what the sky would have looked like. Um, with the 1816 to 1817 painting Greifswald in Moonlight by German painter Caspar David Friedrich. So we know with confidence that his painting would have been entirely different if it weren't for Tambora's eruption. I mean, it just would have been a different scene. English painter William Turner developed his painting style after observing the unique and spectacular sunsets of the year without a summer. And ironically, his 1817 painting, Eruption of Mount Vesuvius, Hmm. is the best example of this influence, even though Turner had no idea that he was witnessing volcanic skies himself. So that was just a coincidence, and it's weird. Crazy. Yeah. Several inventions have also been connected to Tambora's climatic impact. In 1817, German inventor Carl Drace patented the walking machine, which is a walking bicycle. So basically like a bicycle without pedals. Yeah, they make them for little kids now, still. They do? Yeah, like so they can learn how to ride a bicycle. But how do you... You use your feet to walk, but you still go faster because you basically push off and pull your feet up. Yeah, makes sense. So Drace perceived a need for alternate modes of transportation when the year without a summer made grain so expensive that few people could afford to feed their horses anymore. 
During the heights of famine, many horses died of starvation or were killed for meat by their owners. People were in need of a device that would help them travel faster, but one that they would not need to feed. Right. And so this fact that there's, like, inventions coming out of this is really interesting to me because it tells us that, like, Drace and his peers, so people who got on this uh, um, walking machine craze, that they had no idea that this was going to pass. Like, they were thinking... um, this that, is the new normal. Yeah, this is the yeah. new normal, right? And um, they had no way of knowing that this was sort of like a temporary effect from from a volcanic eruption. And so um, I wonder how many people felt that way um, in Europe, you know, that it was dark times and that it wasn't going to improve, it wasn't going to get any better. Um, and this mindset might have precipitated the mass migration to America. So there are a few scholars who are working on this. Um, the beginning of the first 19th century wave of immigration to America coincides exactly with the eruption. Um, and most people who came to America cited civil unrest and famine as their motivating factors for leaving Europe. Um, the Irish, the Swiss, and the Germans made up the majority of this immigrant wave, and those were the areas that were particularly influenced by volcanic climate change. Hmm. So it's interesting to think, like, is that what kind of sparked this and, like, was the deciding factor for people? Yeah, interesting. Uh, and there was also a lot of migration within North America. Land was becoming more scarce on the East Coast, and the crop failures following the Tambora eruption sent settlers from the eastern seaboard into the frontier in search of fertile land and resources. This westward movement triggered violent interactions with indigenous peoples, which came to characterize the Wild West. So basically, without Tambora, we would not have Manifest Destiny and absolutely no spaghetti westerns (laughs) darn Uh, maybe not Uh, but really the sequence of events illustrates how fragile our ecosystems really are and that our ecosystems are interwoven with human systems in ways that we never realized in the past right and we should mention um that there was some idea that volcanic eruptions were related to weather patterns early on benjamin franklin for example posited a correlation between volcanic emissions and weather anomalies um, in the 18th century and uh swiss botanist heinrich zollinger he was born a few years after tambora erupted but in the 1830s he studied botany at the university of geneva and became interested in volcanology Ever since the year without a summer, Swiss scientists had suspected a correlation between the Tambora eruption and the following year's weather anomalies. But in the 1840s, um, Zollinger moved to Java and he spent time studying Tambora. In 1847, he made a detailed drawing of the Tambora caldera and spoke with locals on the island, though he found it um, to be still depopulated. And according to his report, um, Sumbawa communities were still recovering from the disaster, even though it had been 30 years. Hmm. The Swiss never made any definitive connections between volcanic activity and climatic change. But by the time of the Krakatoa eruption in 1883, the science community was eager to find such proof. This time, they were backed by a horrified and fascinated international press, which turned the eruption into a global event. It helped that the first successful transatlantic telegraph cable had been laid just 17 years earlier. Um, In 1815, it took six months for news of the Tambora eruption to reach Britain. When Krakatoa erupted, the entire world was notified within hours. 
Popular interest in the eruption encouraged geological studies and a public scientific discourse, which led to the discovery of how volcanoes function and how they impact the atmosphere. And so what I like to think about, because I'm a bit of a dreamer, is how interesting it is to think of the more subtle ways that inclement weather, um, because of tambora, might have impacted culture. So, like, were people generally more depressed for those few years? I mean, it sounds silly, but we know that um, areas that have very little sunlight suffer from, um, people suffer from depression and there's really high suicide rates. Um, So was everyone vitamin D deficient? You know, Mm. was there more mental illness? Um, Or were there even higher levels of criminality and domestic violence? Because we see that sometimes with uh, times of famine or Mm. there's more sexual violence and um, things like that. and I want to know, somebody has to take this on, but does it have anything to do with the enthusiastic reception of Marxism decades later? So people have, you know, this time where they're remembering starving and being, you know, like plebs and that their government didn't give a crap about them and they just mm-hmm. starved and many people starved to death. I wonder if that's why people were so receptive mm-hmm. to this idea of the bourgeoisie and kind of overtaking, you know, I just wonder. Yeah. I just need to know. That's a good thing to wonder about. <laughs> so, yeah, that's all I have. Discuss. Discuss. <laughs> Discuss. Hmm. Give me some topics. You know, historians go back and forth about whether you can make these ties because something that non-historians don't really think about, but historians definitely do, is is the idea of contingency. So, you know, if this one little thing hadn't happened, you know, could have everything else have been different. Right. Um. You know, probably not. It probably wouldn't have been super, super different. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that we're just starting to realize, you know, the connectedness between nature and social systems. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't know. I mean, let's not say if Tambora hadn't erupted, you know, there wouldn't have been a wave or a, a migration to America. You know, that's right. You can't. We can't say that, but we can say that it was a contributing factor to you know, one of the reasons why people were suffering so much in Europe at the time. Because if there hadn't been Timbora, people would not have been starving. Right. And they had no idea. So it's not like they could say, oh, well, you know, we're just going to have a few years of um, inclement weather because of this. They had no idea. So they're just thinking like, oh, my God, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, you know, Um, which is weird because we kind of feel like that now. (laughs) We do feel like that. With the weather. And we do have science. And we we are able to track that. Because we've had two years without springs. Yes, correct. Well, and I also want to point out that sometimes um, climate change deniers use evidence like this about volcanic eruptions to argue that, that, like, climate change based on uh, greenhouse gases is not a thing. And I want to say that the, you know, that's it's true that volcanic eruptions can um, impact climate just yes. as much, if not more, than greenhouse gases, at least faster or in one go. Right. Um, but the climate change that we ha- we're suffering now is entirely because of years and years and years of creating right. greenhouse gases. Right. So I don't want people to think that we're trying to deny that. No, Industrial Revolution. Thanks a lot. Yeah, seriously. Seriously. But weirdly, it's weird that the that the volcano, like, ha- that this mass, this massive, eru- this biggest eruption in history happened right at the start of, like, the Industrial Revolution in yeah, the U.S. Yeah, that is weird. You know? 
Well, now there are some people who are studying what causes eruptions Mm -hmm. because it actually isn't just random. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have actually – some people have proven that climate change, so man-made climate change, actually uh, it um, accelerates volcanic activity. Mm. So the volcano (laughs) might have erupted because of um, other climatic factors that that we created ourselves. Obviously, no one knew that, but Mm. I know. Interesting. Interesting. I know. We're all just, it's all just one big circle. We're all just made of earth and we'll all go back down into the ground. If you are buried as a tree. (laughs) No, I'm going to be, I want to be, um, cremated. Cremated. And then I want someone to throw my ashes up into the atmosphere and then I'm going to come back down as acid rain. You're going to cause a famine. That's what you're saying. You want to be a, a little famine. bit. I want to have an impact on history. You want to hurt people? You're a monster. You need to give up I'm true kidding. crime. I'm kidding. I don't want to do that. Um, okay, so that that's all we have for you today. Oh. Um, we would love to hear your your thoughts on this very interesting topic. Um, and we wanted to tell you to please um, leave a rating and or a review on our iTunes feed. Or wherever you listen to your podcast. Yeah, or wherever. Um, please, if we're not on your platform, your preferred platform, let us know. We can get a, um, get us on there. Mm-hmm. And please visit our website. It's digpodcast.org. Dig pancakes. It's digpodcast.org. Mm-hmm. And uh, follow us on Twitter, Insta, Pinterest, all that stuff at dig history. Dig underscore history. Yeah. Okay, bye. Bye. Other meteorolog- meteorolog- meteorologic. Meteorologic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm in a loop. Meteorological. Am I saying that right? Meteorological. 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 Just say weather data. Thank okay. you. Okay. Great Britain launched a strategy of gun bloat. Gun bloat. Gun bloat. <laughs> so starvation and desperation in Yunnan killed a blank number of people. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to find a number and I just couldn't find one. So just a lot of people. Killed I mean, tens of, of thousands of people. Thousands of people. No, it's tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. Okay. Settled over the entire archipelago. Oh, God, I can't say this f- word. Archipelago. 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 <laughs> Lago. What is it now? Tens of thousands died from thirst. <laughs> um. <laughs> Are you opening up condoms over there? I am opening up Why are you acting like you don't know how to talk today? I don't know. I can't talk today. <laughs> Climat... No, I can't even say it again. Climate... Climatic. Climatic. She's caught the, the lizzies. <laughs> <laughs> the climate... With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.